Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. On KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Noir at the Bar, where you get to hear some of your favorite authors reading from their books and short stories. Now, this season, our guest readers are authors that are going to be attending the Left Coast Crime in Seattle, April 11th to 14th. So not only do you get to hear them on the show here, you can go visit them, meet them, and maybe get a book signed. First author up reading is Judy Penn-Shellock, and she's reading from her Marketville Mysteries, and the book is called Skeletons in the Attic. So set us up and let us know what you're going to talk about, Judy. All right, so yes, so the book I'm reading from today is Skeletons in the Attic. Hopefully you can see that. And I'm going to take you to um, the op- one of the opening scenes in Chapter 1. Uh, right now we're joining Leif Hampton, who is a lawyer, and Calamity, Callie Barnstable, who is the book's narrator and protagonist. Um, and they're in the boardroom of Hampton and Associates. Uh, some of the text has been abridged in the interest of time. Leif Hampton opened a drawer and removed a manila file folder along with a thin document bound in pale blue cardboard. The words, Last Will and Testament of James David Barnstable, etched in black on the cover. Let's go into the boardroom, he said. We won't be disturbed there. I followed Leif into a long, windowless room with a mahogany table surrounded by several black leather swivel chairs. I selected a seat across from him and waited. Leith placed the will in front of him, moving an invisible crease with a well-manicured hand, the nails showing evidence of a vigorous buffing. I wondered what kind of man went in for a man in petty. I was surmising on the petty, and decided it was the kind of man who built his services out for $500 an hour. Unlike his office, which had a desk stacked high with paperwork, the boardroom was devoid of clutter or ornamentation. The sole exception was a framed photograph of an attractive blue-eyed blonde, mid to late twenties. She had her arms wrapped possessively around two fair-haired children, ages about three and five. Mrs. Lee Hampton the fourth, I assumed, or possibly the fifth. I'd lost count, not that it mattered. My business here had nothing to do with Hampton's latest trophy wife or their gap-tooth offspring. I was here for the reading of my father's last will and testament, an event I would have been far happier not attending for a good many years to come. Unfortunately, a faulty safety harness hadn't stopped his fall from the 30th floor of a condo under construction. 
the fact that a criminal defense attorney of Leith's reputation had drawn up the will was an indication of just how long the two men had been friends. Leith cleared his throat and stared at me with his intense blue eyes. Are you sure you're ready, Calamity? I know how close you were to your father. I flinched at the Calamity. Folks called me Callie or they didn't call me at all. Only my dad had been allowed to call me Calamity, and even then only when he was seriously annoyed with me and never in public. It was a deal we'd made back in elementary school. Kids can be cruel enough without the added incentive of a name like Calamity. As for being ready, I'd been ready since I got the call telling me my father had been involved in an unfortunate occupational accident. That's how the detached voice on the other end of the phone had put it. An unfortunate occupational accident. I knew at some point I'd have to face the fact that my dad wasn't coming back that we'd never again argue over politics or share a laugh while watching an episode of The Big Bang Theory. Knew that one day I'd sit down and have a good long cry, but right now wasn't the time, and this certainly wasn't the place. I'd long ago learned to store my feelings into carefully constructed compartments. I leveled Leith with a dry-eyed stare and nodded. I'm ready. Leith opened the file and began to read. I, James David Barnstable, hereby declare that this is my last will and testament, and that I hereby revoke, blah, 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 blah. I bequeath the whole of my estate, property, and effects to my daughter, Calamity Doris Barnstable. I nodded and tuned out the monotony of the legal, the will's legalese. I had expected no more and no less. I was the only child of two only children, and my mother had long ago left my dad and me to fend for ourselves. Not that the whole of his estate would amount to much. Some well-worn furniture, a few mismatched dishes, a small stack of dog-eared paperbacks. There is one provision, Lee said, dra dragging me out of my reverie. Your father wants you to move into the house in Marketville. I sat up straighter and looked Lee in the eye. Clearly I'd missed something important when I'd zoned out with the blah, blah, blah. What house in Marketville? Leaf let out a theatrical courtroom sigh, well-practiced but over-the-top for his audience of one. You haven't really been listening, have you, Calamity? I was forced to admit I had not, although now he had my undivided attention. Marketville was a commuter community about an hour north of Toronto. The sort of town where families with two kids, a colleague, and a cat moved to looking for a bigger house, a better school, and soccer fields. It didn't sound much like me or my father. You're saying my father owned a house in Marketville? I don't understand. Why didn't he live there? Leith shrugged. It seems he couldn't bear to part with it and he could stand living in it. He's been renting it out since 1986. The year my mother had left, I'd been six. I tried to remember a house in Marketville. Nothing came to mind. Even my memories of my mother were vague. The house has gone through some hard times, what with tenants coming and going over the years, Leith continued. I've done my best to finish the property, but not living nearby. He colored slightly. I glanced at the photo of his vibrant young family and suspected such treasures did not keep, come cheap. There was probably alimony for the other trophy wives as well. I decided to let it go. My father had trusted him. That had to be enough. He said you want, he wanted me to move into the house. When was he going to tell me? Well, I think the initial plan was that your father was going to move back in there, but of course now. Now that he's dead, you think he wanted me to move there? Actually, it's more than wanted calamity. It's provision of the will that you move into 16 Snapdragon Circle for a period of one year. After that, you were free to do what you wish. Go back to renting it, continue to live there, or sell it. And if I decide to sell it, homes in that area of market will typically sell quickly and for a decent price. You'd have to put in some elbow grease, but your father left you some money for renovations. He had money set aside, enough for renovations. I thought about a shabby townhouse, the threadbare carpets, the flannel sheet covering holes in the fabric of the ancient olive green brocade sofa. I always thought my dad was frugal because he had to be. It never occurred to me he was squirreling away money to fix up a house I didn't even know existed. Leaf nodded. Enough for you to take a year off work and fulfill the other requirement. Leaving my call center job at the bank would definitely not be a hardship. And my month-to-month -month lease would be easy enough to break. What's the other requirement? Leith leaned back in his chair and let out another one of his theatrical sighs. I got the impression he didn't really approve of the condition. 
Your father wants you to find out who murdered your mother, and he believes the clues may be hidden in the market bill house. And that's my story. Thank you very much, Judy. That was excellent. Thank you. And uh, now we'll go down to John. What's going on your end of the bar? It is Winona Kent. She is reading from uh, Notes on a Missing G-String, which is the winner for the best title. <laughs> so I'll just set this up. This is from Notes on a Missing G-String. It's book two of my Jason Davy Mystery Series. Jason's a professional musician and an amateur sleuth. And in this book, he's investigating the theft of some money from a stripper's locker. And he's run up against the Soho crime lord, Arthur Brasky. And in order to get information out of Brasky, Jason's been forced into doing a firewalk, which Brasky has sponsored. Uh, he's really scared. And to make matters worse, Brasky's arranged for a traffic accident to deliberately delay Jason's arrival. So he's missed the introductory safety and prep talk that precedes all firewalk events. So one further point, Jason is obviously a guy, and this is written in the first person, so you'll have to imagine I'm a guy, and I'm also English. I felt a tap on my shoulder. I turned around. It was Arthur Brasky. You have arrived then, he said, rather more jovially than I would have thought the situation warranted. Yes, I'm sorry, I said. It seems because I've missed the warm-up chat, I won't be allowed to participate. Nonsense, Arthur Brasky pronounced, clapping his hand on my shoulder and dragging me across to the organizer, a guy named Grundig. A late addition. He's walking. A moment of doubt flashed across the guy's face. But we have strict rules, Mr. Brasky. I know the rules. I'll assume the responsibility should he come to harm. I wasn't filled with any great sense of relief. I was most definitely going to come to harm. Having Arthur Brasky step in to accept the blame for it wasn't going to soothe the scalding burns on the soles of my feet. But I'd advise you to agree, Mr. Grundig, unless you consider your daytime employment a less than necessary fixture in your life. Mr. Grundig opened his mouth and closed it again, obviously thinking the better of what he was tempted to say. Come with me, he said instead, taking my arm. A lot of people had promised they were going to be there to cheer me on. I didn't see any of them. Just watch the others, Mr. Grundig advised. Do what they do. Don't think about it. Try to think past it to the end. Walk quickly, but don't run. Don't stop for anything. Remember the Leyden Frost effect. He was going to leave me there. Abandoned me to the fire. He was going to walk away. Wait, I shouted. What's the Leyden Frost effect? A woman who was standing in last in line turned to me and said, Goodness, weren't you paying attention earlier? When the embers are at 700 degrees Fahrenheit, the water on the soles of our feet will produce a protective cushion that stops the skin from burning. And that's proven, is it? I said skeptically. Of course it is. Stop being silly. You'll frighten the others. I couldn't see how any of the others could possibly be more terrified than me. To make matters worse... Arthur Brasky was standing front and center behind the ropes, grinning at me like a bloody Cheshire cat. The reason I could see him in the dark was because there were four tubs filled with blazing logs, one at each corner of the fire pit, which I judged was about ten feet long and three feet wide. It was shimmering orange and red and looked extremely hot. It felt extremely hot, too. The warmth was radiating out, cloaking us as we stood in the lineup, waiting to prove our metal or have it melted. Are we ready, ladies and gentlemen? It was a flashy showman sort of guy, a natural with a mic. I found out later his name was Pete Barnum. I'm not joking. He checked the fire pit with a thermometer on the end of a long wand, then satisfied it was at just the right temperature for a perfectly seared top sirloin, made the announcement, shoes and socks off, if you please. Most of the walkers were already in flip-flops. A few, like me, were in trainers. I couldn't sit down on the grass as it was soaking wet, and I really wasn't keen to make my jeans look as if I peed myself. I got my trainers and socks off, balancing on one foot at a time, and I was actually rather pleased to be standing on sopping grass because I reckoned that meant I'd be giving the famous leg and frost effect a fighting chance. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you your fire master, Braden. Braden was as flashy as Pete Barnum and was dressed in a spangly white jumpsuit the sort of thing Elvis would have worn while he belted out Viva Las Vegas. I had to hand it to Brasky. He knew how to deliver a show. 
Braden quickly rolled up his trouser legs and made sure they were going to stay up by applying a pair of diamond-studded bicycle clips just below his knees. Our brave Braden is going to be the very first to go, just to prove there's nothing to fear. Braden, if you please. Braden bowed to us, then trod onto the burning embers and walked quickly and efficiently all the way to the end, where he stepped off, planted his feet on the wet grass, and took another bow to enthusiastic applause. Next in line is... Pete paused to ask the woman her name. Alma, she shouted, raising her hands over her head, while her friends and family cheered from the sidelines. Are you ready, Alma? I'm ready. Off you go, then. With an enormous grin on her face, Alma purposely walked from one end to the other. She landed on the wet grass, shuffled her feet as if she was cleaning them off, then scooted around to where I was standing and rejoined the line. I'm going again, she shouted, high on her success. I was no longer the last participant. Braski was determined to make sure I went through with it. He was impaling me with his piercing glaze. I tried to ignore him, focusing instead on everyone else as they took their turns, trying to concentrate on what they were doing, how quickly they were walking, how honest they were at the end when they jubilantly claimed there was nothing to it and, with adrenaline-fueled exhilaration, cheered their fellow walkers on. I've suffered burns. I know what it feels like. I have scars, though you can't see them unless I take off my clothes. There were 12 people ahead of me, and then eight, and then two. The assembled guests had been cheering nonstop, and at the end of each walk, they'd erupted into appreciative whoops and claps. It was my turn. You ready, mate? What's your name? Jason, I said. Ready to go, Jason? I wanted to say no. I wanted to turn around and run as far away from the fire as I could get. I could feel the grass wet and cold under my feet as I forced myself to ignore my galloping heart and pay attention instead to the science. Hang on, Jason, we just need to rake the fire. I closed my eyes. I couldn't wait. It was now or never. Falling my fists, I opened my eyes and started to walk, just as Braden finished redistributing the hot embers. And it's Jason's turn. Let's hear it for Jason. My heart was racing. I barely heard the cheering. I could feel the heat on either side of me where the burning wood had been stacked higher. Science, I thought. Water. Feet. Focus. I was halfway there. I could feel a tingling on my soles, but it wasn't burning. It was like walking on the hot sand at Seven Mile Beach in Grand Cayman. Screw you, Arthur Baskey, I thought, pumping my arms the way I'd seen the others do it. Screw you, fire. This time you won't have your way. I was breathing deeply by the time I stepped off the burning path and onto the soothing wet grass. The onlookers on the other side of the rope had been encouraging me the whole way but it was only at the end when I actually heard them shouting my name and sending me congratulatory cheers. Exhilarated, heart-pumping, I turned to Arthur Brasky and gave him my best screw-you-too look before I strode off the grass and away from the fire pit. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate you being on and, and doing reading today. And Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. Morning face. You get it when you don't sleep well. This is what happened to Linda. Morning, guys. Good morning. Ah, what is that thing? It's me, Linda. Oh, my God, it talks. Run! No, it's me, Linda, from HR. It looks hungry. Save the children. Save them. What? Stay back. I've got mace. Ow, they're putting my eyes. Quit moving. It's called beauty sleep for a reason. And there's never been a better time to get some. Get 20% off IKEA Sultan mattresses. IKEA, love your home. Look, we know that boy's going to ask again, so let's be ready. Fine, I'll be him. You ready? Ready. Mom, could you hook me up with a GoPhone? You'll run up the bill, son. Yo, that's whack, Moms. GoPhone is totally different. What? It'll only cost me an arm? Chillax. It has unlimited talk and text. Seriously? Word. Okay, we'll get a GoPhone. Really? Uh, really? That is the bomb. Do you even know what the bomb means? Yes. No. Hey! Oh! 
Go phone, only from AT&T. With unlimited talk to 65 million wireless AT&T customers and now unlimited text to anyone on any network. AT&T, your world delivered. If you're a fan of stories that make you afraid to turn the lights off at night, then you will love Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror. From attorney, former Air Force officer, special agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and Bram Stoker award-winning author, Hank Schwabel. Moonless Nocturne is a chilling set of ten tales that offers an exquisite and impressive showcase of the author's talents that are sure to entertain and intrigue readers who love a good thrill. With an introduction by the Iconic F. Paul Wilson, Moonless Nocturne is a gourmet platter of both red meat and rare delicacies, not only for aficionados of horror, mystery, thrillers, and suspense, but any connoisseurs of fantastic fiction. It's inventive and original. This collection has already been optioned for television and film by Lone Tree Entertainment and is certain to appeal to fans of King, Barker, Matheson, and Jackson. It's not the dark that should scare you. It's all the things that lurk there. Order your copy right now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror. From author Hank Schwabel. Now back to the show. Next up we have uh, Iona Wishaw. So now you're going to be reading from uh, To Track a Traitor. Now this is a historical mystery. So set it up and let us know what you're going to be reading here. Okay, so this scene takes place in one of the scariest places I've ever been. If you move west by foot out of the seaside town of Eastbourne in the south of England, you go up a very, very steep climb uh, through a wood and then continuing up in sort of bare countryside until you get to the very top of the cliff and you're in a place called Beachy Head. Uh, there you'll find yourself on the edge of the most terrifying cliff, chalk cliff, looking out at France across the water and right under your feet, a 500-foot drop to the beach below. In this uh, particular section uh, of the reading, Lane Winslow, who's my main character, uh, her sister is has been spying during the war, and she's really anxious to get out of the whole business. Uh, but she, her lover, who was the man who used to handle her, wants her to come away with him, but she has terrible news for him. She now knows something that no one else does, that she's found treachery high up in the very heart of the British intelligence system, and she suspects only the two of them will be able to bring him down. So it's May 10th, 1948. There was a bare sliver of a moon, but its faint efforts could not penetrate the wood, and Diana found herself having to peer at the ground to follow the path steeply upward. He told her to bring a torch, but not to use it unless absolutely necessary, and a change of clothes. She stopped, cursing at the steep climb up from the edge of town. He was supposed to have picked up her suitcase, but now she wondered if he'd been able to. She hadn't packed much, but the bag gained weight with the steepness of the climb. During the day, the path would likely be full of dog walkers and ramblers, but tonight it had the power of the darkness that she used to fear so much as a child in the woods near their house. She could hear her own breath coming heavily, and she stopped to take off her heavy cardigan and tie it around her waist under her leather shoulder bag. She had to decide. He'd asked her to leave with him. He must have set something up, perhaps a boat pickup somewhere below in the darkness. Now, with her satchel of clothes stumbling about in the dark, she wondered if she would come to regret this decision. She wanted so badly to be finished with the whole thing, to retire to private life, whatever that proved to be. But she loved him, and she knew about Fairfax. Something would have to be done about that. Only she and Alex would probably be able to come up with a plan. One thing was certain. She had to be as far away as possible. Fairfax would realize sooner or later that she'd been into his secret cubbyhole and taken something. She hadn't been sure at first about leaving with Alex, but it offered the chance to get far away where there would be time to work through what ought to be done. She could just make out the end of the dense wood up ahead and picked up speed. A root caught her foot, and she fell heavily, her torch flying out of her hand. She could feel that she'd skinned her hands, and she felt a burst of anger. Anger about being here alone in the dark, when she could have been in Scotland with her grandparents fussing over her. Anger that Alex did ha still had the kind of hold on her that would bring her out in the middle of nowhere to crash around in the dark. She lay still for a moment, 
But hearing nothing but her own breathing, she got up, dusted off her trousers, and began to look for the torch. She found it four feet away, where it had rolled down the slight slope and had come to rest against a tree. She tested it and was relieved it worked. She hoisted the bag back onto her shoulder and scanned a short section of the path directly in front of her with the torch and then turned it off. Her watch with its phosphorescent numbers told her she was already late, so she picked up her pace again. If she thought the opening of the wood meant she was close to her goal, she was disappointed. The terrain opened up after the wood, but it continued relentlessly uphill. Her relief at finally seeing the figure just at the top of the hill was huge. She was going to call out to let him know she was there, but something stopped her. What? It certainly was Alex. She'd recognized that stance anywhere. Why had she hesitated? Then she saw that he turned suddenly to look behind him. She waited, watching to see what he'd heard. She was standing in the darkest shadow of a high bank of trees. Something was not right. In the next moment, another man came from somewhere behind Alex. He was tall, wearing a long coat, his hat pulled low. She felt as if she were watching a shadow play. She had the idea that his hands were in his pockets. He said something she couldn't hear. Perhaps this was why Alex wanted to meet her. They were to meet this other man? But that was... She couldn't believe what she was seeing. Why was he here? Horror froze her. The tall man burst forward suddenly, and in the next instant the two of them were grappling, moving toward the cliff edge. Alex was struggling, his back to the sea. And then he was falling backward, his arms flailing. He dropped like a stone, casually tossed by a schoolboy, his scream filling the air. How long did she cower in the dark, shivering with terror and shock? She could not take her eyes off the man who had pushed Alex Tremaine to his death. He stepped back from the cliff and shrugged as if to adjust his coat on his shoulders. And then he turned and walked a few paces towards where she was hiding. He looked into the dark of the wood as if he were expecting someone. It took a cold moment to realize that she was the one he was waiting for. How had he found out? She looked hastily back the way she'd come, wondering if she could make her way back down. And when she turned again, the man was calmly lighting the cigarette. His lighter flipped open, the bobbing flame illuminating his face for the briefest second. He stood, looking out to sea for a few moments, nonchalant, as if he had not just thrown a man to his death. Suddenly he turned, looking into the darkness behind him, and called out, Diana, I know you're here somewhere. I know what you took. I will find you, and I will kill you. That was terrific. I'm curious. Um, I, we both write historical fiction, and I'm curious, why, do you, uh, why are you drawn to this particular time period? Um, I don't, don't really know, except I sort of started writing it, and then there I was, writing it. Uh, I think it's a lot to do with the fact that my parents are from that time. I, I think a lot of us my age have parents from that generation. And uh, my mother herself uh, engaged in espionage, and uh, so there was, it was kind of an attractive thing. My grandfather was a spy, and his two brothers both worked for MI6 as well. So I think it was just too tempting <laughs> to just be there. That's a great, I mean, that's a lot of uh, reason to write from that time period. And um, I write from that time period because of my parents, and that's just so interesting. Um, it's terrific. Thank you so much. Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. If you're a fan of stories that make you afraid to turn the lights off at night, then you will love Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror. From attorney, former Air Force officer, special agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and Bram Stoker award-winning author, Hank Schwabel. Moonless Nocturne is a chilling set of ten tales that offers an exquisite and impressive showcase of the author's talents that are sure to entertain and intrigue readers who love a good thrill. With an introduction by the I 
iconic F. Paul Wilson. Moonless Nocturne is a gourmet platter of both red meat and rare delicacies, not only for aficionados of horror, mystery, thrillers, and suspense, but any connoisseurs of fantastic fiction. It's inventive and original. This collection has already been optioned for television and film by Lone Tree Entertainment and is certain to appeal to fans of King, Barker, Matheson, and Jackson. It's not the dark that should scare you. It's all the things that lurk there. Order your copy right now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror. From author Hank Schwabel. Now back to the show. Well, we've got a really interesting guy here now. He's got 25 years in the U.S. national security, and he's a former CIA, and he's doing, uh, like, espionage international mystery. So, Adam Sykes, we're glad you're here. And what are you going to be reading for us today? I'm going to be reading from my debut novel, Landslide, which, uh, as you suggested, Al, is an international spy thriller set in Europe and ends up in war-torn Ukraine. It's a story about loyalty, lies, redemption, and uh, a gentleman time to figure himself out. We're going to start in Frankfurt, Germany, in Chapter 1, with the protagonist, Mason Hack. man sitting across the table from me was a representative from the German Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs and Energy. He embodied the quintessential German bureaucrat. Shiny bald head, wire-rimmed glasses, slender physique, and a crisp gray suit. He spoke methodically, laying out everything in an organized and unambiguous fashion. His pronunciation precise and curt. He was clear and direct, emotionless, getting right to the point. I preferred working with people like him. I didn't have to sift through any convoluted nonsense obscuring the crux of the matter. My boss, Alastair Rutfield III, sent me to meet with him. It wasn't my first, it wasn't my usual sort of trip, no conflict zones or crime bosses, but I didn't mind. I go where the firm tells me. Jack Thompson, the partner who typically handles government interactions, had a personal thing so he couldn't go. I think his wife is leaving him or he's leaving her. I'm not sure, and it's none of my business. Nonetheless, this trip is a nice reprieve. I like Germany, the efficiency, the logical organization, the simplicity, not to mention the beer and the food. And unlike my usual trips, there aren't any triggers here to conjure up the demons. I enjoy some blissful forgetfulness. Tonight I'll go to Applevine Solze. They have an excellent roasted pork knuckle that's sure to give me heartburn, but it's worth it. There are worse things in life. So here I am in Frankfurt, one of Europe's great financial hubs. On behalf of Rutfield & Leeson, Rutfield for short, a global financial firm based in the city of London. We occupy floors 37 through 40 of the Leiden Hall building and handle corporate accounts for an international defense firm and energy multinationals. They may have been the robber barons of the 21st century, but someone has to invest their money. But unlike the financial giants Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, and Credit Suisse massive firms in the bulge bracket, Offering a 50-page menu of services, Rutfield is a boutique. It's not everything for everybody. It doesn't need to be to do what it does well. Like I said before, it's good to keep things simple. As for my position in the firm, I'm not a senior partner nor a top analyst. I can crunch numbers and read the markets. One can't survive in this arena without knowing that stuff. But my expertise falls elsewhere. I go to the places other bankers won't. The warlord-controlled rare earth mines in South Africa the pirate-infested shipping lanes in the Gulf of Aden, the lawless border regions of the former Soviet satellite states, and most recently, the war-ravaged Syrian desert. In these garden spots, I talk with the local businessmen and government officials, but I also seek out the paramilitary power brokers and mafia types who wield as much leverage on international markets as the bureaucrats and corporations. It's this ground truth that gives Rutfield an ice edge over its competitors, and they pay me handsomely for doing what I do which I don't mind, even if sometimes I wonder if I deserve it. Not surprisingly, all mo most of the senior partners find value in the information I gather. They also whisper about me at the holiday parties and as I pass by their offices. I don't make a show of things. I keep to myself quite well, but they know the rumors. Whether there is any truth to this or that story, and allegedly there are some dudes, it doesn't matter. I'm not keen on setting the record straight. I don't see the point. Consider me however you want. I'm an American a rebel colonial from across the pond and a former U.S. Marine. I fought in Bush's wars, and after 20 years of picking a fight with just about every country on the planet, the Brits view us Americans differently. It might take a generation or two to get back to being the chummy cousins we once were, if ever. But I hope we do. My meeting commenced within an hour of my arrival in Frankfurt. I took British Airways Flight 902 out of Heathrow, 
which I've already taken 20 times this year alone, usually with a connection sending me elsewhere. I had a chance to chat with Trish for a spell while we're in the air. I've known her for quite a while. She's a flight attendant, and this is her route. She's a nice gal, a bit younger than my 38 years, but she likes me for some reason. The plane touched down in Frankfurt at 9.45 a.m., and an analyst from Ruckfield Satellite Office, Klaus, picked me up from the airport and drove me straight here. The briefing by the ministry official had been droning on for the past 30 minutes, but I'd heard everything I needed in the first five. Germany was actively exploring options for other energy reasons, natural gas, coal, oil, which was no real surprise. The situation in the Middle East was too volatile. Putin had kicked off a killer dance party, and like the rest of Europe, Germany needed stable energy. Relations with the United States had become unpredictable in recent years, too, which didn't help matters. Their own fault, and I, can't help, I can only shake my head. Germany's new direction, however, means investment opportunities. Only a fool would ignore them, and Alistair and the rest of the partners at Rutfield are no fools. While the German talked, I let my eyes wander to the flat-screen television mounted on the far wall. The day's financial staffs were scrolling at the bottom. The main newscast was about the conflict in Ukraine. BBC World News reporting on Russian aggression in the region. The annexation of Crimea a few years back had only been the start. Incursions and support to separatists in Donetsk and Luhansk had been next. Off and on, on and off, cease fire and then return fire, pull back and move up, then invasion. Never end, never does. Only the Russian steamroller, formerly limited soldiers and tanks, included businessmen and conglomerates with offshore bank accounts and commanding positions on the stock exchange. Once the Kremlin security forces established control, the economic tentacles slithered in. It was all very imperial-like, maybe a little hotsy. From the closed captions, I could discern the talking heads were reporting on the detention of a Western journalist by pro-Russian militants. A freelancer had been near the border when he was kidnapped. Rumors gleaned from the locals indicated the militants suspected he was spying and not a legitimate journalist. But that was typical. Every foreigner is a spy in places like when I visited Ukraine a while back, well before this mess, I had been careful to register with the right offices, bribe the right officials, make it abundantly clear I was with a financial investment firm, not any government. The last thing I ever wanted was to get tossed into a Ukrainian or Russian prison cell. After the perfunctory beating to get things going, they enjoyed drilling holes in your teeth and hammering your knees to loosen the tongue. No thank you. But when the BBC displayed a picture of the missing journalist on the screen, a vice clamped down on my chest, and I stopped breathing. I stared, riveted, unable to tear my eyes away. I recognized the hair, those eyes, that jaw, and the bold-ass grin. It was his face, my best friend, my comrade in arms, the man I went to twice to war with, and the man I'd risked my life trying to save. I'd know his face anywhere, but that guy was dead. Kevin Gomez died over 15 years ago on a blood-soaked gurney in the heart of darkness. Yet his picture appeared on the television plain as day, and apparently he was alive, but with someone else's name. Well, fantastic. So that was your, this is from your debut novel. So um, how are you finding it being a first-time writer? Really enjoying it. Get to travel a bit, get to do what I love, and tell some stories that maybe have changed a little bit from real-life experience. Yeah, certainly. Well, we're glad you came on. Next reader is Ed Amar, and Ed is a fantastic thriller writer. Uh, his new book, uh, When She Left, is going to be out in February, Ed. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Cool. And you are reading from your purchase is complete, and this is a short story, right? That's right. Yeah, very short. Great. I'll let, I'll let you take it over. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, John. Yeah, for uh, these events, I host the North Bar series for Washington, D.C., and when I read at those events, I always like to read a self-contained short story, so it's just kind of force a habit. Um, although, you definitely um, should buy my book. This is called uh, Your Purchase is Complete, and it's told from the uh, point of view of a frequently asked questions uh, section on a website. Goliath Axes, frequently asked questions. Thank you for your interest in Goliath Axes. At Goliath, we pride ourselves on axes, guaranteed to give the sharpest cut with every swing. Our wooden steel are manufactured right here in the U.S. of A., and our axes have been sold throughout the world since 1918. Before contacting customer service, please read below to see if your question can be answered. Frequently asked questions. What is your return policy? Goliath axes are rarely returned. But if you find our products unsatisfactory for any reason, returns are accepted up to 90 days after receipt. 
What if my Goliath axe was damaged during use? Can it still be returned? Some minor abrasions and scratches are to be expected. These will be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. What if my Goliath axe is bloodstained? Provided that the axe is returned within 90 days and the blood can be removed through a standard cleaning procedure, your refund will be processed. What if my Goliath axe is required to be part of a police inquiry? We suggest that all legal matters are completed before a Goliath axe is returned, as it could be very difficult to locate the same axe upon it being refurbished and re-inventoried. If, if I've discovered my husband's been having an affair with his coworker, and I plan to use my Goliath axe to chop his head and penis off, do you provide instructions in the enclosed brochure? Every Goliath axe is sent with a small card that has a QR code linking to an instructional video series detailing the best way to hold the axe, proper swinging technique, and advice on cleaning and storage. While these techniques generally only apply to wood chopping, Goliath products are practical for any number of other purposes. For smaller jobs that don't require an axe, we recommend visiting the website of our sister company, Kristen Cutlery. Will I feel guilty afterward? Guilt is a human construct determined by changing societal and legal theory and shouldn't be a factor in your decision to purchase Goliath products. Globally, the concept of retribution is the accepted practice of reform. So who is to say the woman who strikes down her disloyal partner has done wrong? Haven't I been a good wife? Don't think that way, Diane. Or ascribe the failings of others to yourself. Every institution in which we place our loyalty will, at some point, fail to satisfy our needs, except for Goliath axes. Your government will betray you. Your employer will suddenly sever ties. Your loved ones will die. Being good prevents none of those things. It simply maintains the necessary facade of a cheerfully mutual investment until the inevitable happens. You've been a good wife. What if I can't live with myself afterward? You can't live with yourself now. Look around the bathroom floor, at the hair you've yanked from your head, scattered like pine needles, the spreading branches of blood from cuts in your arms and legs. Diane, there's a reason you came to our website. In the same way that Goliath's axes have lasted generations, you're doing something people have always done. If it's too hard for me to go on after I do this, can I use a Goliath axe on myself? It would be difficult, given that a proper swing is delivered from the hips. Again, we would recommend contacting our sister company, Kristen Cullery, who sell knives and other kitchen products. When will my Goliath Axe arrive? You've selected express shipping, so your Goliath Axe should arrive a couple of hours before Dan returns from his business trip tomorrow. Do you think I'll change my mind? Your purchase is complete. And thanks so much. Thank you. You know, you're, you've hosted many uh, Anwar at the Bar and been on many Anwar at the Bar, and I've known a consistent theme with your readings is the, uh, the use of dark humor. What, you know, how did you figure this out? This is, it always wins. Why, why did you go that route? I mean, your books aren't always dark humor oriented, but your readings are. Yeah, I mean, I try to always, you know, I think it's really important to, to always, like, every writer has to have something that they, you know, like your strength that you turn to. And I always try to have a penis being cut off in my work, you know, whether it's novels, it's short stories, essays, you know, um, wedding vows, you know, whatever it is where I really want to make get that point across. I try to make sure that I, I put that even as just a footnote. Yeah, well, I think it's always good to play to your strengths. So, and, and you yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> you write what you know. <laughs> right. We interrupt our programming. This is a national emergency. Important details will follow. Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. Morning face. You get it when you don't sleep well. This is what happened to Linda. Morning, guys. Good morning. Ah, what is that thing? It's me, Linda. Oh, my God, it talks. Run! No, it's me, Linda, from HR. It looks hungry. Save the children. Save them. What? Stay back. I've got mace. Ow, they're one of my eyes. We're moving. It's called beauty sleep for a reason. 
And there's never been a better time to get some. Get 20% off IKEA Sultan mattresses. IKEA, love your home. Look, we know that boy's going to ask again, so let's be ready. Fine, I'll be him. You ready? Ready. Mom, could you hook me up with a GoPhone? You'll run up the bill, son. Yo, that's whack, Moms. GoPhone is totally different. What? It'll only cost me an arm? Chillax. It has unlimited talk and text. Seriously? Word. Okay, we'll get a GoPhone. Really? Uh, really? That is the bomb. Do you even know what the bomb means? Yes. No. GoPhone, only from AT&T. With unlimited talk to 65 million wireless AT&T customers and now unlimited text to anyone on any network. AT&T, your world delivered. Computer, execute 12.4p operation. Optimizing algorithm. Running encryption packet alpha 990. I don't feel so good. What? What is it, computer? Is it hot in here? It feels hot in here? I feel a little clammy. I should lie down or something. A computer with a virus? Surprising. What's not surprising? How much you could save by switching to GEICO. Those oysters Rockefeller were a mistake. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. If you're a fan of stories that make you afraid to turn the lights off at night, then you will love Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror. From attorney, former Air Force officer, special agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and Bram Stoker award-winning author, Hank Schwabel. Moonless Nocturne is a chilling set of ten tales that offers an exquisite and impressive showcase of the author's talents that are sure to entertain and intrigue readers who love a good thrill. With an introduction by the Iconic F. Paul Wilson, Moonless Nocturne is a gourmet platter of both red meat and rare delicacies, not only for aficionados of horror, mystery, thrillers, and suspense, but any connoisseurs of fantastic fiction. It's inventive and original. This collection has already been optioned for television and film by Lone Tree Entertainment and is certain to appeal to fans of King, Barker, Matheson, and Jackson. It's not the dark that should scare you. It's all the things that lurk there. Order your copy right now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror. From author Hank Schwabel. Now back to the show. Carl Wondro, who is the author of Murderbilia and Saving Miles. Carl, what are you reading from this evening? I'm uh, reading from Saving Miles, this book here. And um, it was published in August, so please buy it. Um, I'm going to read from uh, chapter one. It's a book about family, kidnapping, and money laundering. So chapter one. Wade Bosworth turned on the front lights of his house for the men who would take away his son. He'd never met them. But on the Internet, they appeared in their 20s. The men were driving down from L.A. and had texted that they'd be on time. He made his way to the dark kitchen and sat down. Through the screen of the window, he heard the chirr of crickets then the neighbor's tree rustling and settling back into the dark. He breathed in the quiet enormity of what he was doing. It was 4 a.m. His son didn't know what was about to happen. In less than an hour, his life would be ripped in two. Miles was 16 years old. Wade put the water on the stove to boil and crept up the groaning stairs to the bedroom. He and Fiona dressed in the dark, then padded down the hallway to listen outside Miles' room. No growls and screeching of heavy metal music. No tapping computer keys. We, Wade eased open the door. The lava lamp Miles had begged them to buy oozed red bubbles that cast a blush over their son in his bed. Asleep, his face looked like a child's. It was hard to square that face to the rants and magic marker on the window shades. I hate families. I'm an alien trapped in La Jolla. Does a zombie know he's a zombie? Wade breathed in the musky odor of marijuana. He needed to center that smell in his thoughts. It was evidence that they were doing the right thing. Fiona's slippers swished ahead of him through the hallway. They creaked down the stairs to the kitchen and the beat-up oak table they'd bought a month before Miles was born. Tonight, Wade had to block off those memories, for Miles' sake. He poured the boiling water and set the French press on the table. Wade had ground the coffee the night before so the shriek wouldn't wake his son this morning. Fiona sat opposite, her long back hunched. She was two inches taller than him, but tonight seemed smaller. Splotches shattered her angular cheeks, and lines had deepened around her eyes. Needles of gray had snuck into her brown hair. 
You know, in a few months, ten years of aging had telescoped into her body. He was doing this for her, too. We're saving Miles' life, Wade said, his voice low. When had they started whispering in their own house? Fiona shook her head. We let him come to this. He did everything we could. Did we? Please, Fiona, we can punish ourselves later. Don't tell me what to feel. He blunted his anger. He had to wear his banker's calm now. Wade poured coffee into the two mugs. He watched Fiona interlace and unravel her long fingers. Those hands used to fly up in excitement and joy. Not for months. Who was it? Years. She extended her arms toward him over the table. His high chair used to be right next to where you're sitting, she said. He refused to look, refused to weaken when they all depended on him to stay strong. Let me go over it again. Skipping school, plummeting grades, sneaking out at night, continuous pot smoking. She was silent. He knew she was waiting for him to drop the last incontrovertible reason. And he didn't restrain himself. Not tonight, when their son's life was in the balance. Oxycontin, he said. She stared out the back window into the dark backyard. On the wall, his father's clock counted out seconds like a warden's pocket watch ticking down to an execution. It was 4.20 a.m. There was a knock at the door. Across from him, Fiona sucked in a breath. Wade went to the front. The whole block was asleep, but for the two young men standing in the lights of their house, Ricardo and Sam looked like college students or trainees at his bank, hair neatly combed, unwrinkled slacks, and long-sleeved Oxford shirts. Sam, the taller and thinner one, had a small beard. Ricardo was big-shouldered and cleanly shaven. Fiona's shoulders seemed to loosen when she saw them. Perhaps these young men, just a few years older than Miles, could assuage her doubts. The four of them sat at the kitchen table and Wade poured coffee. We're going to do this with respect, Sam, the one with the beard, said. Ricardo nodded at his partner and then at each of them. No blaming, he said. We do this with dignity, Sam said. She stared at the two men as if they were selling insurance. Wade asked the question before she could. Suppose he doesn't cooperate. Sam gave Fiona a sympathetic smile. I've only had to use restraints once, he said. Restraints, Fiona said. Did you just say restraints? Wade steeled his palm against the chair. Why the hell did he have to say restraints? We won't have to do that here, Sam said. Ricardo set his arms on the table. Wade noted they were thick and muscular, like he'd been lifting weights. That's why this happens at 4.30 in the morning, Ricardo said. Your son will be disoriented. His defense is down. We talk to him like men so he can retrain, retain his pride. Jesus, Fiona said. Sam met her gaze. He must have dealt before with hesitant mothers like Fiona. She set it up with the reason why. You set it up with the reason why. Very short. We don't want any arguments. I suggest that Mr. Bosworth do that. Just tell Miles that because of the choices he's made, you're sending him to a place where he can get help. He'll be shocked. Shocked, Fiona said. He'll be scared to death. No, no, Sam said, raising his palms. We're not like that. You leave and we talk to him. All calm. We lay out everything we're going to do to him and tell him it will happen whether he wants it or not. But he chooses whether he keeps his dignity. They always choose dignity, Ricardo said. We didn't like how they kept repeating dignity. I guess you don't have to tell I guess you don't tell him you're taking him to a lockup, Fiona said. Wade couldn't stop the words from busting out. Damn it, Fiona, you know it's not a lockup. It's in a desert. It's in Utah. How the hell is that not a lockup? Her fingers had curled into claws. Sam studied Fiona and scratched the part of his beard over his chin. A lot of mothers feel exactly the same way you do. But these kids never volunteer to go to a treatment center. It takes people like us to persuade them. None of you has any idea what it's like to be a mother, Fiona said. We've seen kids just like Miles Fan said. We understand what they're going through. Fiona's eyes glistened. She swallowed and her head dropped. She was relenting and Wade released a breath. The only sound was his father's clock striking the seconds. I know we have to do this, Fiona said. You're a good mother, Wade said. That's why you're rescuing him. But he'll never forgive us. Don't you see that? Sam slid his hand closer to her on the table. Later, he'll thank you. Her shoulders shuddered and she cradled her face. 
She took a big breath. She stood. Let's get it over with. Wow, that's great for all. You know, I, it's, it's amazing. I was reflecting just on the readings uh, that we've been listening to and how we really do span, like, the emotions. And that, of course, you're dealing with some pretty dark emotions about a father or parents and, and their son and what to do. Um, what drew you to this material? What, why were you writing about this? Well, we, we had some things we went through with my son several years ago, so I wanted to put what happens when you send a, a kid to one of these places, and particularly what happens after they come back, and how they changed and not changed. Uh, so um, um, that's what I did, and then plus I wanted to write a book that had some money laundering and family in it, and there are actually three points of view in this book, so that was a challenge and, and a, a good way to do it, I thought. Excellent, excellent. Very, very emotional. Wonderful scene choice. Thank you. Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, 
or show, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.